Chapter 8 of the Black Eagle Mystery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Overby, Parkland, Washington. Dedicated to Uni. Chapter 8 of the Black Eagle Mystery by Geraldine Bonner. Molly tells the story. For the next few days, my molding was stopped. Troop was down with grip, and a substitute in his place. There was nothing to do but sit in my little hole by the elevators, passing the time with a novel and a tray cloth I was embroidering. At night, when himself and I had meet up, I'd hear from him how O'Malley was getting on in his tunnel. Babbitts kept in close touch with him, for he had the promise of being along when they made the inspection of the offices. It took some days to arrange for that, and while O'Malley was laying his wires for a midnight search, his men were tracking back over Tony Ford's trail. It didn't take them long and there was nothing much brought to light when you considered the kind of man Tony Ford must be. For the last three years he'd held clerkships in New York and Albany, and once for six months in Detroit. From some he'd resigned, from others been fired, not for anything bad, but because he was slack and lazy, though bright enough. The only thing they turned up that was shady was over two years before in Syracuse, when he'd been in a small real estate business with a partner, and was said to have absconded with some of the funds. Nobody knew much of this, and the man he'd been in with couldn't be found. The detective said it was so vague they didn't put much reliance in it, though maybe it might be spite work. Anyway, it wasn't the record of a desperado, and they'd have been sort of baffled to fit his past actions with his present, if it hadn't been for one thing that, according to their experience, was very significant. In the last two months he'd spent a lot more money than his salary. As Miss Whitehall's managing clerk, he'd been paid $65 a week, and he had been living at the rate of a man who has hundreds. It wasn't in his place. That was simple enough. A back room in a lodging house but he'd been a spender in the white lights of Broadway. At expensive restaurants and lobster palaces, he'd become a familiar figure. The gambling houses knew him, and he'd ridden round in motors like a capitalist. By the swath he's been cutting, said Babbitts, you'd suppose he had an income of five figures. Oh, Soapy, I said, horrified. They don't think he was paid for it. Himself looked solemnly at me and nodded. That's exactly what they do think, Morning Dew. He was paid and evidently paid high. Whoever the other man was, he could afford to be extravagant in his accomplice. Their idea is that Ford was engaged for his superior strength, and demanded a big retainer in advance. What a terrible man, I murmured, and thought of him standing in the doorway smiling at me like butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. He's a regular gunman. Worse than a gunman, for he's educated, said Babbitts. Gee, wasn't it a lucky thing I only got out of that place. The morning after that conversation, I bid Babbitts goodbye as if he was going to the South Pole, for that was the night they'd selected to examine the two offices. Three of them were in on it. O'Malley, Babbitts, and one of O'Malley's men, a chap named Stevens. Himself would turn up for breakfast, if he could. But if there was anything pressing at the paper, or more developed than they expected, I wasn't to look for him till the evening of the next day. I went down to my work, and had a dull time, for Troop was still sick, and there was nothing to do but now and then jack in for a call and sew on my tray cloth. No Babbitts that night, and no Babbitts for breakfast and me piling downtown for another eight hours in that dreary room, with Troop not yet back, and not a soul to speak to. If, when I came home that evening, I'd found Babbitt still away, I believe I'd have forgotten I was a lady sleuth, and started a general alarm for him. But thank goodness I didn't need to. For there he was on the Davenport, with his muddy boots on the best plush cushion, sound asleep. I didn't intend to wake him, but creeping round to our room, looking at him as I crept, I ran into the Victrola with a crash, and up he sat, wide awake, thanking me sarcastically for having roused him in such a delicate, tactful manner. In a minute I was sitting on the edge of the Davenport, 
You'll know how I felt when I tell you I forgot his feet on the cushion, squeezed up against him and staring into his face. Quick, go ahead. Did you find anything? We did, Morning Dew. Did you get any nearer to who the other man is? We got next. The chief was right. It's Johnston Barker. Barker? But Soapy... He raised a finger and pointed in my face. Don't begin with any buts till you know. Now, if you'll be quiet and listen like a nice little girl, you'll see. This is what he told me as I sat pressed up against him, every now and then giving myself a hitch to keep from sliding off, too eager listening to rise up and get a chair. They gained access to both offices without any trouble, O'Malley flashing his bag at the nightmen, whom he'd already seen and fixed with the story that he was after important papers for the Copperpool men. They tried the Harland offices first, a cursory inspection showing nothing. It wasn't until O'Malley himself got busy in the rear room that they began to move forward. A mark on the windowsill was what started him. It was a circular shape, about as round as a butter plate, and was made, he said, by the heel of a man's boot. Then he turned his attention to the window casing, the ledge in the outside frame. He used a small pocket searchlight, also matches, dropping them as they burned down and examining every inch of the surface. The first thing he lit upon was the cleat, to which the awning rope was fastened in summer. It is always screwed securely down to the woodwork and has to be strong and firm to hold the awnings in heavy winds, especially at that height. The cleat outside the window was loosened, and between its base and the wood were a few torn threads of rope that had caught in the head of the upper screw. These threads, carefully untangled and preserved, were from a new rope, clean and yellow, not the gray wind and weather-worn shreds that would have been left from the summer. Below the cleat were scratches, some long and deep, some wide, zigzagging scrapes. By the color of these, he said they had been recently made. From there they descended to the Whitehall suite. Here O'Malley wasted little time on the front rooms and went direct to the rear office and began on the window. Babbitts and Stevens were ordered to search the floors and walls, which was easy as the furniture was gone and the place was bare except for the radiator and the washstand. I may as well put here that their investigations proved nothing. But O'Malley's did. He went to work just as he had on the floor above. This cleat was secure, but on the sill were more scratches, several long deep ones and on the stone ledge that same round, circular mark. But what he found there that was the vital thing was a button. It was lodged in a corner made by one of the small wooden rims that go up the window casing, parallel with the window. Anyone could have overlooked it. Hardly visible in this little angle where it might have been sent by the cleaner's duster as she flicked about the sill and the ledge. It was a metal button, of the kind used on men's clothes to fasten their braces to, and it bore round it in raised letters the name of a fashionable tailor. By the time they had done all this, it was coming on for morning. They slipped out of the building and went to an all-night restaurant nearby to wait for daylight, when O'Malley had decided to make an inspection of the church. He and Babbitts would do this, while Stevens, as soon as the day was far enough advanced, was commissioned to go to the tailor whose name was on the button, and find out when and for whom he had made any suits having that button upon them. Meantime, the day had broken into morning. With a caution to Babbitts to stay where he was, O'Malley sauntered off to see about fixing things for getting on the roof of the church. Babbitts was left wondering whether they were going to be plumbers or tin workers or members of the congregation admiring the sacred edifice. But when O'Malley came back, he'd got a new one on Soapy, for he depicted them to the sexton as an architect and builder from the West, who were so struck by the dome they wanted to get up on the roof and study its proportions. Fortunately, it was a black, heavy day, the kind when the lights shine out in dark offices and people come to the windows and yank up the shades. If anyone did notice them, they'd have looked like a couple men searching for a leak especially as they were busy in one spot, the space below the two windows marked by the burnt end of the matches O'Malley had dropped. And here, with the scattered matches all around it, caught in the ledge just above the gutter, they made the greatest find of all. A scarf pin. It was a star sapphire, 
set in a twist of gold and platinum. An hour after they had it in their possession, it was identified by George and Mr. Whitney as one they had seen on Johnston Barker the morning of January 15th. From the tailor came further testimony. He identified the button as made from a new mold, the first consignment of which he had received late in December. So far, he had only used it on two suits, one for a mining man from Nevada and the other for Johnston Barker, a dark brown cheviot with a reddish line. This had been the suit Barker had on when he had visited the Whitney office that morning. When he came to the end of all this, I was balanced on the edge of the sofa, with my feet braced on the floor to keep from sliding off and my eyes glued on my loving spouse. Do you mean he came down from one window to the other, Soapy? Babbitts nodded, lowering himself by a rope fastened to the upper cleat, which his weight loosened. But, my goodness! I was aghast at the idea. A man of Barker's age dangling down along the wall that you could see for miles? You couldn't have seen him twenty feet off. The wall's dark, and it was a black dark night. If you'd been watching with a glass, you couldn't have made out anything at that height and at that hour. But the danger of it! He was on a desperate job and had to take chances. Besides, it's not as risky as it sounds. The distance he had to drop was short. The ceilings are low on those office buildings, and the awning supports have to be manually strong because of the summer storms. And then the man himself was small and light, and is known to have kept himself in the pink of condition. With a strong rope thrown over the cleat, he could easily have swung himself to the story below, stood on the stone ledge which his feet scratched, and pushed up the window which Ford had previously left slightly raised. The whole thing was a plot? A consummate plot. Not a murder committed on the spur of the moment, but a murder carefully planned. Whitney thinks Barker had scented Harlan's suspicions long before they broke out in the quarrel. In fact, that he had provoked it to give color to the suicide theory. When Barker went up that afternoon, the rope was under his coat. When Ford left the Azalea Woods estates early, he knew every move he was to make from that time till he boarded the elevator. There were only two weak spots in it. The open window on the 17th floor and the length of time that Harland was supposed to have been in the corridor, the two points upon which Whitney had based his suspicions. I was silent for a minute, turning it over in my mind. Then I said slowly, When Barker was coming down that way, it would have taken some time, wouldn't it? Harland must have been in the front office. Yes. O'Malley's puzzled over that point. What kept him there? Looks like he might have had a date with someone, I said, pondering. Ford, of course, but nobody can imagine what he wanted to see Ford about. Oh, there's a lot of broken links in the chain yet. I looked at the floor, frowning and thoughtful. It's awful strange. I'd like to know what made him come down there. What was put up to him to lure him that way to his death? End of chapter 8